Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian Mesa. My name is Aaron Beck. And we have a fantastic episode ahead for you today. On the pod this week, we're going to be talking to Jason Kander, former Missouri Secretary of State and President of Let America Vote. Now, some might say that Jason Kander is a pod rock star. That's interesting. I would actually just call him a pod star. See, I would, I would say the same. I don't think podcasts have risen quite to the level of fame and glory as you know, the rock stars of old. See, I just don't think you're listening to the right podcast. That's fair. Maybe. <laughs> but I know I am listening to Jason Kander's very own podcast, Majority 54, <laughs> that he runs through the Crooked Media uh, organization. And he really has experience, a lot more experience doing this than we do. Uh, though you might argue that ours is older and therefore better. Yeah, that's definitely an argument you can make. But he's also Jason Kander. And, uh, <laughs> People listen to him. <laughs> he's a really interesting guy. Like Christian said, Missouri Secretary of State. He ran for Senate in Missouri in 2016 and has since been working uh, as president of Let America Vote, an organization he founded uh, to help people get out the vote and to register people and really uh, fight against attempts to suppress voters. So really interesting guy. We can't wait for that conversation. But first, Christian, what do we have up uh, our favorite segment here uh, at uh, Find the Wall? Well, it's interesting because our segment, favorite segment is actually the segment wheel. Wow, what is that? I've been, I haven't been here in a while. You need to catch me up. Okay, so our segment wheel is very simple. All you do, uh, we spin the wheel. Uh, there are a couple segments that we have. It's random. Uh, we pick a we pick a segment based off of the random segment wheel, um, and we go about our day. Aaron, don't prematurely roll. I'm the segment sorry. Wheel. I accidentally hit. I accidentally reached my hand out and <laughs> spun the physical wheel we have on the wall. Uh, does someone want to spin the wheel? I I'll do it. I got it right here. Ready? I wonder what it's gonna be. Christian, what do you think it's going to be? Oh, it is. Did you see that? Oh, I hate this one. And in fact, I did not see that coming. Um, but uh, Aaron, uh, the piece this week we're going to talk about. Did you see that piece uh, written by Clint Smith? Uh, if you haven't checked out his episode of Fly on the Wall. Uh, Who's Clint Smith, Christian? Uh, Clint Smith is an activist, writer, um, and all around smarter person than anyone I've ever met. <laughs> um, definitely check out his work if you haven't seen it uh, and check out our podcast with him. But Clint Smith wrote a piece for The Atlantic um, in which he basically talks about the fact that it is um, it is the anniversary of Martin Luther King being bailed out of uh, the Birmingham jail. Um, and it talks about, it goes through the history of that and then talks about why we need bail reform in the United States. And a piece I, or a line I just wanted to read for you. Um, there is a growing belief that using money to make sure a defendant will show up in court is inherently unfair to the poor. And it all talks about why we need bail reform in the United States. Uh, great piece. Definitely go check it out. Uh, we'll link to it in all of our social media. Um, it's called uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Was Bailed Out by a Millionaire. Check it out. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool to, to learn about some of these issues, you know, things that I had never really thought of, you know, bail reform as, you know, important part of criminal justice reform, not just, you know, private prisons and a lot of the other things that people talk about when they talk about criminal justice reform. So... Uh, many thanks to Fly on the Wall alumnus Clint Smith for keeping uh, us all more well-educated. Yep. That was not a very well-educated no, sentence <laughs> formation that I did there. But you do your best. Do you want to spin the wheel? I do <laughs> want to spin this wheel. Oh, no, not that one. Not that one. Okay, that one's okay. Damn it. 
in or out. Wow, this one's actually really exciting. So our topic, well, actually I'll preface this by saying, because I don't know if this has come up before uh, or if it has maybe only once. Uh, we give you a topic or we give ourselves a topic and um, we say, you know, whether we're in or out, we kind of sort of have to build the case and have that discussion about, you know, how we feel about the topic. Aaron, what are we discussing? The topic today, courtesy of our fantastic research director, Alec Kamhai, uh, the topic today is protest. So this topic is really topical, especially because uh, we had a very big protest in Washington, D.C. and around the country uh, just on Saturday where we, you know, people showed up and talked about the issue of gun control and gun reform uh, and gun rights and gun sense and, and, and all the sort of angles at which you can come at this issue. So um, Christian, in or out protests, are they an effective means of political communication and political participation? Uh, a couple of different questions there. Uh, I'm going to piece it together uh, in based off of the effectiveness of protests. I'm going to say I'm in on the effectiveness of protests, and here's why. I think the most important thing is it gets voters engaged on very policy-heavy issues, right? So, I mean, some of the bigger protests I've been thinking about, um, we had some really big protests around healthcare. We had some really big protests around gun control. Um, there have been protests around, um, obviously, women's rights after... Um, the Trump inauguration. I think that there, it gets people engaged about very seriously policy heavy issues that they may not, um, it gets people engaged and educated about issues that they may not know about. Um, and I think it's a really good way to get people involved in democracy in general. Um, and it gets people calling their senators, it gets people calling their congressmen, it gets people talking about issues that they may not talk about on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, that's a great point, especially, you know, the ability to open up that conversation, you know, by this sort of landmark event. I think that's that's a great point you make there. Um, I will take, to be a contrarian, I'll take the outside stance, not because I don't believe in, you know, protests or mass um, mobilization as effective tools, um, just because, you know, I think there are uh, a couple practical ways to make a case against um, protests. So first and foremost, uh, a lot of times, you know, historically when people do these mass movements, mass protests, uh, we see a lot of people flock to a city. Uh, they have a day or two, if they're lucky, um, demonstrating, and then they go back home. And oftentimes, if there's not an election a couple weeks away, a month away, that's sort of the last we hear the issue. You know, it'll, it'll make waves in national media for, you know, maybe a couple days, maybe a week or so after the protests. But, you know, with the dysfunction we've seen in Congress and the inability to compromise, you know, these mass demonstrations are are a lot less direct than, you know, other forms of political action, like voting or calling representatives um, and things like that, So or high-profile speakers speaking about issues. So there's that component. The other issue that I see um, is that oftentimes a lot of people will come to D.C. to protest on a Saturday or Sunday, but your members of Congress are back home in their districts, right? They may be paying attention on the news, but if you want to have that direct interaction, if you want to spark action, sometimes the most effective way to go about doing that is by going to town halls or organizing more local grassroots events. I, I remember over the summer when the Republicans were trying to repeal and replace uh, the ACA, some of the most effective tactics that the Democrats employed purely from a strategic level of you know practicing politics were to stack those town halls of especially vulnerable Republicans. And I remember thinking, you know, politically, that's smart. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, protests, great. Love people getting involved in politics. Uh, effectiveness, uh, I think there's some questions there. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think just that, you know, 
stay involved, people. Uh, don't regardless. Go, yeah, yeah, regardless of your political affiliation, it's always important that everyone hears your voice. Uh, so always speak loud. Um, all right, let's get into our episode. Uh, as we said a little earlier on the pod, we're going to be talking to Jason Kander, um, former Missouri Secretary of State. He ran for Missouri Senate in 2016. Uh, very, he kind of became famous very quickly for a specific advertisement that he ran that we're going to talk about. Um, and then as well, after he lost um, in 2016, he went and started Let America Vote, which is essentially a voting rights group that gets people uh, making sure that they can vote. Great Twitter follow as well. Would recommend. Great Twitter follow. Uh, with that, let's bring in Jason Kander. Yeah, can you just like check that for me? One, two. Right. Now batting for the Kansas City Royals, Jason Kander. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the dream that you want to you hear from that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, I'm sure we'll today. Mm-hmm. The Dodgers. That's all right. We <laughs> don't really have any beef with the Not Dodgers. Exactly. Nice part. Is it okay? Not yet. Uh, Jason Kander, welcome to the podcast. It's very good to be here. Thanks for having Super me. Super excited to welcome you to main campus. Now, you're a graduate of Georgetown Law, is that right? I am, yes. Have you ever been on main campus before? Uh, yes, and I did ROTC while I was okay. in law school, so okay. um, it was us- it's dark out right now. That's usually what it was like when I was on campus. It was <laughs> Super early in the morning or right. later at night coming back from like Fort Belvoir or somewhere. And then occasionally I was here during the day too. But We have a roommate who does ROTC as well, Army. So he, uh, we're intimately aware of how early you uh, are. Yeah, he's yeah, he's probably getting up, waking you up, whether you like it or not. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'll start first uh, with, you know, sort of your early experience in uh, politics and public service. So we all know you as the first millennial elected to a statewide office, but before that, you served in Afghanistan after 9-11. So can you take us inside the room of how you made that first decision? To go to Afghanistan? Yeah, to go to Afghanistan. Well, really, I mean, it starts with joining the military in the first place. You know, I was, I was going to school here in D.C. when 9-11 happened. Um, I was in my last year at American. And I had always thought about serving in the military. Like I, my, my grandfather, like a lot of people, my grandfather had served in World War II, my great-grandfather in World War I. And the way that they had gone in during wartime and done their service and then returned to, to their lives, just not only did it seem like a patriotic thing to me, it just seemed kind of practical to me that that's what you did when your country went to war. Right. And so when 9-11 happened, up until that point, I'd been thinking I, I admired that kind of service and I wanted to serve one day, but I don't know that I ever would have actually done it. Like, mm-hmm. I really, to this day, I don't know what would have happened. Uh, but then 9-11 happened and it was just like, well, this is what I'm going to do. I remember that day feeling like having this refrain in my mind that was, I have to do something. I have to do something. And, and so what that eventually led me to was joining and then, um, and then volunteering to go over and uh, serve as an intelligence officer in Afghanistan. And in between that and, you know, running for statewide office, when did you get bitten by the political bug? When did you decide that this was something you wanted to get into? Well, so I grew up in a home that was really public service oriented. Um, in the sense that, you know, my, my folks were juvenile probation officers. My dad was a police officer at night. And so I, I grew up in a home where what my parents taught us by example was, um, you know, you, you have an obligation to try and help others, try and make things better. Nobody ever said, like, you should run for office or anything like that. But I became interested in it. And, um, and I was thinking about running before I deployed. I had taken some steps in that direction, running for the state legislature. Uh, and then I think really my view of politics and like what cemented the way I see the world in a large way is being in Afghanistan, particularly because I grew up comfortably. 
there was nobody in a political office who could make a decision that would take food off my family's table. And there are a lot of people in politics for whom that is the case. And that's a valuable and important perspective. It's not my perspective. My perspective is that of somebody who the first time in my life that a politician was able to make a decision that could negatively affect my life, I was in a vehicle with no armor in Afghanistan. And, and it became very apparent to me that, you know, there's real stakes here. And it, and it really shaped the way I, I see things and the way I see politics. And it made me want to really, in a new way, made me want to be in a position to make decisions in a way that wasn't about political angles, but was just about what I thought was right. Uh, so before President Trump was elected, not a lot of millennials like yourself were thinking about running for office. So when you ran for Missouri Senate in 2016, you were sort of the first wave uh, in that class. So. Take us behind the scenes of, you know, your first few days on the trail and, you know, how you went about, you know, car- uh, charting out an, uh, an untrodden course. Well, remember, for me, it wasn't really all that uncharted. I, mm-hmm. I had already run a statewide race in Missouri. Right. So, so I had run in 2012. So for me, that's really where that started of running statewide for the first the time. secretary, and, right. Yeah. And so, you know, look, when I started running for secretary of state, people mostly said, this guy's not going to win. I mean, I, <laughs> I think I was... I think it was 30 when I started running wow. and um and look I mean people but look when I when I first ran for state representative um I was 26 when I started running and it was a three-way democratic primary and everybody mostly said you know it seems like a nice young kid I mean but he's not gonna win right everybody said he'll probably come in a distant third and I went out and knocked on 20,000 doors and ended up winning with 68 percent of the vote wow. so I just you, now you can't knock on every door in Missouri but my approach was and I'm going to get everywhere I can. So we put 90,000 miles on my campaign manager's Ford Escape in that <laughs> campaign. And um, and I just got everywhere I possibly could. Uh, and as far as what it was like the first few days, one of the things that I remember that's kind of funny is, at first, we didn't have any literature, right? like, like palm cards and right. stuff, <laughs> you know, flyers to hand out. Uh, and I remember going, we did a lot of county fairs and events like that during that campaign because I was just trying to get everywhere and shake as many hands as possible. And I can remember it, like really having to come out of whatever shell I had because I would go to these and I didn't have any material. And I didn't have like stickers with my name on it. I didn't have anything like that. So I'm just a dude at your <laughs> county fair walking up and talking to you. <laughs> just selling yourself, man. And, right. And so that's what I was doing at first. And then by the time we got flyers, it was like, man, this is easy. <laughs> so I don't even have to say anything. <laughs> right. It was, you know, because th- th- there's a... There's context there. Somebody walks up, they hand you something that has your picture on it and your name. They're like, okay, I get it. This guy's running for something or, or selling something. Or maybe that's one of the same. But <laughs> but it's – so starting that way definitely helped me be able to do that. And when you think back to that race, is there a defining moment for you on the trail that sort of stands out, sort of encapsulates that entire experience? I don't know if there's a defining moment, but there's a story that I do sometimes tell people about um, – like one of those moments where you're like, look, it's a gut check. You're going to keep going or you're not. And uh, at that time in Missouri, we didn't have campaign contribution limits, which I thought we should. And that's a whole other conversation. Right. And, <laughs> and there was uh, one guy who gave um, over the course of that campaign, $900,000 to my opponent. And that was like 70 plus percent of his budget. My biggest contributor, I think was like, four percent of my budget or something like that so the first time that 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 very big donor wrote a check to my opponent it was a check for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars 
And the way it worked at the time is a check like that had to be disclosed pretty quickly. So I'm sitting in an office at our campaign headquarters and I'm making some fundraising calls. And my campaign manager uh, walks in and tells me, he says, what happened? He said, this guy just wrote a check for $250,000 to our opponent. Now, my goal for that fundraising quarter, that three months, was $250,000. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and then I looked down at the piece of paper in front of me for this gentleman that um, I was supposed to call. And in the part that said how much money I was supposed to ask him for, it said $250. And I remember thinking in that moment, this is sort of a gut check. <laughs> this is sort of a you're going to hang your head or you're just going to keep, you know, keep uh, moving forward. So I called this fellow and I asked him, we had a conversation. I asked him if he could do $250. And he said, uh, you know, I can only do 100 And I said, you know, um, this thing just happened, 250000 I said, do you think you can do 250 And he said, he laughed and he said, Tell you what, I'll do 200. And I, and I remember just saying, that's 200 more than I had before. <laughs> and I just kept going. And That's a win for you right there. <laughs> yeah, and the reason it was a pivotal moment, I guess, is that um, we, on the, we won that race on the same day that President Obama lost my state by almost 10 points. And I actually, believe it or not, ended up slightly outraising my opponent by just, just outworking him. So a lot of the reason that, you know, you gained a lot of attention in the Senate race uh, was, of course, that, that rifle ad. I'm Jason Kander, and Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns. Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. In Afghanistan, I'd volunteer to be an extra gun in a convoy of unarmored SUVs. And in the state legislature, I supported Second Amendment rights. I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this. Uh, and I feel like you've probably talked about this a million times. Yeah, we can talk about it. It but, is so cool. We actually rewatched it as we were preparing <laughs> for the episode today. It is so cool. And I almost feel like I don't have to explain what happened in the advertisement because I feel like anyone who listens to our podcast knows exactly what this advertisement is about. But it's essentially you assembling, you know, a military style rifle while saying, uh, while advocating for guns. And blindfolded. Yes. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a pretty important okay. part of the ad. Um, well, the most important part is the advocating for gun control part. You're right. Right. So talk to us about, I mean, like, how did you make the decision that this was the advertisement you wanted to do? How did this go from, you know, somebody's head into this actually happening? So I have an F rating from the NRA and, and they were making sure that every voter knew that they were running a lot of ads about that. And, you know, a lot of people were contacting the campaign and saying that we should make one of those ads that you've seen candidates make where you shoot like a really big gun and talk about how much you love hunting and, and pretend you're a Republican, right. basically. And I was just never going to do that. And, and so what I said at the time was I said, you know, I can put a rifle together. I bet a lot faster than the other guy. Right. And they said, well, can you do it blindfolded? And I said, well, I've done it in the dark a lot, like cleaning my weapon in the woods in the army. I said, yeah, it's muscle memory. I can probably do that. So then we wrote a, a script. And, and what I said, though, I said, if, but if we're going to do this, like we're going to make an argument for what I really believe in. Mm-hmm. So to me, what that ad was, was it was just me saying, um, I'm right. The NRA is <laughs> wrong. And I know what the heck I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the, and I know what the heck I'm talking about that I think is what appealed to people about the ad. Because I was demonstrating, like, you, you can't say I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I do. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from at AP underscore oddities, which is a great follow about very weird uh, and ludicrous news um, in the Associated Press. Uh, And this week, uh, the tweet says, slamming the lid, Rhode Island lawmaker withdraws proposed outhouse ban bill. Hmm. Yep. 
Um, I have a lot of questions. Did I'm you gonna, click on the story? Uh, I did. Um, and, I, you know, it leaves me asking a lot of questions. There's really not a lot of there. Um, mostly about why he felt this was a big deal in the first place. Um, and more importantly, why he decided that he wanted to pull the law in the first place. Uh, the bill really, or the article doesn't add enough context. This is a side note, but the Twitter cover photo for this account is a lemur. <laughs> with as, it has the most intense eyes that I just feel like it's staring at me. That is totally unrelated to politics or anything. But To be wow. fair, Rhode Island lawmaker withdraws proposed outhouse ban bill. Like the least politicky political political thing. So we'll fast forward a little bit, um, not to revisit 2016, uh, and we want to talk about what you're up to now. Okay. Which um, two things uh, that stand out? First of all, let America vote for the organization you founded and are now working with, um, and Majority 54, the podcast that I'm sure uh, you must have expected coming onto a podcast. Yeah, no, I am happy to. <laughs> Tell people who listen to a podcast about my podcast. <laughs> about your own. Yeah, free <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, but let's start with uh, Let America Vote. So, so in those days after your tough loss, how did you go about processing, you know, what you had just gone through? And how did that, and take us down the road to Let America Vote and how that came out of there. Well, so the thing for me, as far as processing is, look, yeah, I had lost an election in a really close race. We'd, we'd overperformed. We'd run a great campaign I'm still really proud of. Right. The other thing that happened was Donald Trump was elected president. Mm-hmm. There ain't a whole lot of reason or time to sit around and say, woe is me. My attitude was, man, I got to I gotta do something about this. I got to get out, and, and I, I'm not going to slink away. I'm going to stay involved. And uh, then Trump, President Trump started saying, uh, at the time President-elect Trump, that there were three to five million illegal votes in the election. And then he named uh, Jeff Sessions as his attorney general. And I had just spent four years as the secretary of state, the chief election official in a state with a GOP supermajority in the legislature, which means I had a really close up view of voter suppression, of the the GOP voter suppression playbook. And it, it has three steps. Step one, undermine faith in American democracy. Step two, create obstacles to voting. Step three, create obstacles to those obstacles. So, right. <laughs> so what I was seeing was that play out on a national level. President Trump undermining faith in American democracy in order to pass more laws like they have in places like Wisconsin and North Carolina. And then putting Jeff Sessions in charge of the Department of Justice, which is an obstacle to voting because he was going to switch sides in all of the cases standing up for voters. And he was going to switch sides and be on the side of voter suppression, which it turns out has happened. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was just I'm in a position to do something about this because I've seen how this operates. I fought this in my own state. So we started Let America Vote to create political consequences for the first time for voter suppression, to take the argument and expand it beyond the court of law, which is still really important, the legal argument against it, but expand it beyond the court of law and into the court of public opinion. So I guess in an abstract sense, Let America Vote makes sense, but what does success look for like for you guys? You know, what work are you guys doing on the ground to, you know, combat voter suppression? Sure. There's some students here at Georgetown who've I worked with us. Um, I was just with him at the event. Um, what we're doing on the ground is we're knocking on doors, we're making phone calls, and the political consequence that we're creating is we're making sure people can lose elections for making it harder to vote. The reason that Republicans make it harder to vote for certain populations is they think those populations, those groups of people, minorities, low-income folks, I keep going through the list, but 
they think those folks are really unlikely to vote Republican. So the problem they're trying to solve is that. And if those folks can't vote Republican or can't vote, then from the Republican perspective, problem solved, right? Because they weren't going to vote Republican. So what we do is we make sure that that's no longer a strategy that they can use to win elections, that it in fact turns out to be a strategy that can lose them elections. So in Virginia, we knocked on over 194,000 doors. Uh, we targeted nine state legislative races. We, we helped win eight of those, uh, seven of which were seats that flipped from Republican and Democratic, all Republican legislators who had voted the wrong way on voting rights. So that's what we do. We make sure they understand that this is no longer a consequence-free exercise. Right. And I know our time is running short, but we have uh, a couple more questions we want to get to sure. real quick. Uh, so another post-Senate project that you've been working with mm-hmm. uh, is working with Crooked Media to start the Majority 54 podcast. Sure. And you've been on a host of other podcasts that mm-hmm. uh, we've all listened to and enjoy. Uh, so I guess the question is two-part, and you sort of tackle how you will. First, you know, what is, you know, the political salience of podcasts in this moment? You know, why are they relevant? You know, what about it is appealing to voters? And, and why is that, you know, why you're trying to push your message? And two, specifically with Majority 54, what are you trying to accomplish there? Uh, so the political salience, like, man, that's a great question for like <laughs> a strategist or for, um, maybe for the guys at Crooked, you know, for, for, for Johns and Tommy and Dan and everybody. I, I would just say that I listen to podcasts and, uh, and I enjoyed them. I, I was listening to, I mean, those guys are buddies of mine. So I was listening to podcasts. I don't want to like start. I listen to all of them. We'll just say <laughs> yeah, I do. And, um. And, and so my point is, it, I was listening to them, I was enjoying them, I spent a fair amount of time on airplanes, that kind of thing. And, and then on top of that, I'm going around the country and I'm giving all these speeches and I'm doing a lot of Q&As. And one of the most common questions I'm getting, whether I'm on a, on a college campus or in a rural county, is some version of, you know, my friend from high school who I love voted for Trump. And I want to be able to talk with my friend about the issues. And not, you know, sometimes it's I want to be able to persuade my friend. Usually it's that. But it's, sometimes it's just, I just want us to be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, I don't want to lose my friend over this. Or, or my dad voted for Trump. My aunt, my, you know, whatever. And so it was sort of, how do I talk about this stuff with them? And so I was always explaining to people, you got to tell people why it is you believe what you believe. Not just what you believe. you got to look inside yourself and figure out what happened in my life, what was the experience, what was the moment, what was the story I heard, whatever it is that brought me to this view. And then you got to show your math and take people on that journey and they'll get there. And what I realized was I was getting this question all the time. And meanwhile, I'm going around the country. And before that, I'm going around my state and I'm meeting tons of people who are actually living these issues every day. I'm meeting folks who are struggling with student loans. I'm meeting folks uh, who are DACA recipients, whatever it is. And that's what's shaping my view of things, right? Is I'm, 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 I'm getting to sort of live these people's experience through their telling of the story to me. So I just realized I wanted to do a podcast where I could help the folks who are in the majority, hence Majority 54, the, the majority that didn't vote for Trump, have conversations with people who did vote for President Trump and convince them and bring them over to the majority by telling these stories. And mm-hmm. so that's why we started it. And Crooked was sold on that. Quick. Yeah, they're just, <laughs> they're good. Uh, they're they're friends of mine, and yeah, they like the idea. And, and uh, yeah, awesome. Well, we do too. Nice. Well, I feel like that segues into our last really quick questions for you that we call our lightning round. I it's our fan your, favorite. Your lightning round, as far as I could, I looked at, has one question. There you go. Well, <laughs> we've we've added a couple more. Okay. Don't worry. Right. I just uh, thought that was you know very. It was lightningish. <laughs> so our first question for you is, you know, what is the winning message for Democrats in twenty eighteen? If you could summarize in like a sentence, I know it's hard. <laughs> I can try. Um, it is that 
we want to make your community a place where you can find success without moving away if you don't want to. Uh, and, you know, and to expand on that, it's just that I think that what we're about, all our policies, you name the policy, I think all of what we're about is about making it so that your family can be happy, healthy, safe, and nearby. So that if you want to be successful, uh, you don't have to move. You may want to move, and that's okay, but you don't have to in order to find success. We want to make sure that your community is a safe, prosperous place where that can happen. Works for me. All right, second question. What's one thing you would have done differently in your race in 2016? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, if I knew I was going to lose, I'd have spent more time with my family. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a bad joke. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm really proud of the race we ran. I said what I believed. And um, that's what's important to me. And I also happen to think that that's the most important thing you can do politically. So All right. nothing ever changed. And last question for you, uh, kind of a fun one. Uh, besides yourself, of course, who is your favorite cook and media host? It's tough. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Just the first one that comes to mind. Nope, not doing Ooh, that. Very diplomatic answer. They're friends of mine, man. <laughs> I mean, I guarantee they probably won't get to listen to it. So you can just maybe tell us. No, someone's going to tweet about it. I <laughs> All right, Jason Kendrick, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you having this conversation with us. And thanks, thanks for coming so. to your show. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's Politicos as Real People comes to us from the man of the week. His name is Jason Kander. We chatted him up a little bit after our episode. He said he'd been on the road for a while. Uh, so this tweet just makes sense. He tweeted out at 4.34 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, March 21st. So the day after we recorded our episode with him, uh, he said uh, two words, just daddy's home. And it's a photo of his uh, Nike shoes that he's probably been wearing around the country. Uh, and then right next to it, uh, some tiny little little shoes uh, for his four-year-old son, True. Uh, identical pair, and it's adorable to it's see. It's really, really, really cute. It's really cute. We're glad that he uh, he gets to be reunited with his family uh, after you know traveling is is hard, and he has a, a tough job, you know, fighting for the right to vote. So glad he gets to to be a real person every once in a while. Well, that's our episode with Jason Kander. I learned a lot, certainly, about the uh, just you know the process of being a millennial trying to run for elected office. You know, him being a pioneer in that sense is really inspiring. I think to anyone, and you know, from the high times to the low times, just a lot to learn in his political story. Frankly, I just really wanted to hear about that rifle ad. Um, I thought that was like the coolest thing that I ever saw in the 2016 election. It was cool. um, And just hearing the inside story of that um, and how his campaign came to that decision, I thought was fascinating. If you guys haven't seen this advertisement, you got to go watch it. And, you know, right now he's fighting for a really noble cause, I think. You know, voter suppression and, uh, you know, voting rights and registering voters, you know, very important, making sure everyone in this democracy can participate in uh, the electoral process. So, yeah. uh, hats off to that. If you're really interested in that subject, definitely go check out Let America Vote. Check out his podcast, uh, Majority 54, or check out GU Votes on campus. I was about to give that plug. Yeah, right here at home. We have an organization that does, you know, try to register people to vote and fight for voting rights. Definitely check it out. Shout out. Uh, So with that, one last, uh, we're going to implore you one last time to follow us on uh, all the social media, Twitter, This is, this is literally the last time. Facebook. We will never ask you for this Yeah, that's again. a lot. We'll ask you <laughs> one week from now. Um, but at Fly on the Wall Pod, choose a note uh, at Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we love talking to everyone who listens to this podcast. Um, 
from wherever you are in the country. So get in touch with us. We love it. Um, and stay tuned because the next few weeks are going to be jam-packed with awesome guests. Yeah, if you don't follow us on social media, you don't know any of the cool guests that we're going to have in there in a couple weeks. Yeah, but if you do follow us on social media, you know exactly who we're talking about. So follow us on social media. See who we're going to have in the next couple of weeks. Um, It is a fantastic slate of guests. I am very, very, very excited. Where is Kansas City? Okay, you would think. You would think the quick answer to this is Kansas. Kansas, right? (laughs) Christian, where's New York City? New York. Yeah, where is um where's Minnesota City? I don't think it exists. <laughs> if it existed, where would it be? I probably Minnesota. What about California City? Uh, also doesn't exist. But again, if it did oh, exist, it Jersey would be in City. California. Jersey, Jersey City. City. That's Oklahoma. Yeah, Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City's in Oklahoma. Like it just so makes why why sense. what what happened to you, Missouri? What happened to you that you needed to name one of your most famous cities? Uh. Kansas City. Like, did you just really like Kansas? What was going on there? Okay, see, in 2017, the Kansas City Star uh, put out an article as to why Kansas City, uh, why isn't Kansas City named Missouri City? That's a great uh, question. Um, I, you know, I will tweet out this article in case anyone wants to read it, but it seems like the TLDR is, you know, I can't read this quickly enough to actually find a... That's all annexation. (laughs) Wow, this is an annexation. Spicy move. Um, wow, we should have been more prepared for this. <laughs> Kansas politicians made attempts to annex Missouri side of Kansas City. So apparently, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it kind of like straddles both states. Like there's a Kansas City in Kansas and a Kansas City in Missouri. There should be a Missouri City in Kansas. This is a Just great, a- great ad for the coastal elites here. So Kansas City was incorporated before Kansas even became a state. So maybe that's maybe that's a solution. Cool. Do you want to talk about Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs>